ಕಂಸಚಾಣೋರಮರ್ಧನಂ ದೇವಕೀ ಪರಮಂದಂ ಕೃಷ್ಣ ವಂದೇ ಜಗದ್ಗುರು ಸೊ ಇನ್ ಅವರ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿ ಆಫ್ ದಿ ಭಗವದ್ಗೀತಾ ವಿ ವಿ ಆರ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿಂಗ್ ಫಿಫ್ತ್ ಚಾಪ್ಟರ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದ ಪಾರ್ಟ್ ವಿ ಆರ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿಂಗ್ ಇಸ್ ಜ್ಞಾನ ಯೋಗ ದ ಪಾತ್ ಆಫ್ ನಾಲೆಜ್ ಆರ್ ದ ವೇ ಆಫ್ ನಾಲೆಜ್ ಇನ್ ಫ್ಯಾಕ್ಟ್ ಇಟ್ ಮೇಕ್ಸ್ ಮೋರ್ ಸೆನ್ಸ್ ಟು ಸೇ ದ ಸ್ಟೇಜ್ ಆಫ್ ನಾಲೆಜ್ ಬಿಕಾಸ್ ದಿಸ್ ಇಸ್ ಪ್ರೊಸೀಡೆಡ್ ಬೈ ಆಲ್ ಸಾರ್ಟ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ಸ್ಪಿರಿಚುವಲ್ ಪ್ರಾಕ್ಟಿಸಸ್ ದರ್ ಇಸ್ ಕರ್ಮ ಯೋಗ ವೆರ್ ವಿ ಎಂಗೇಜ್ ಎಥಿಕಲ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಡಿಸ್ಇಂಟ್ರೆಸ್ಟೆಡ್ ಆ್ಯಕ್ಷನ್ ಡಿಸ್ಇಂಟ್ರೆಸ್ಟೆಡ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಸೆನ್ಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ದಟ್ ವಿದೌಟ್ ಇಂಟ್ರೆಸ್ಟ್ ಬಟ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಸೆನ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ವಿದೌಟ್ ಸೆಲ್ಫಿಶ್ ಮೋಟಿವ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ದಟ್ ಪ್ಯೂರಿಫೈಸ್ ದ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ವೆನ್ ವಿ ಎಂಗೇಜ್ ಇನ್ ನಾಟ್ ದೆನ್ ಮೀನ್ಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ಸೀಕ್ವೆನ್ಶಿಯಲಿ ಟುಗೆದರ್ ವಿತ್ ದ್ಯಾಟ್ ವಿ ಎಂಗೇಜ್ ಇನ್ ವರ್ಷಿಪ್ ಡಿವೋಷನ್ ಟು ಗಾಡ್ ಮೆಡಿಟೇಷನ್ ಸೊ ಆಲ್ ಆಫ್ ದಟ್ ಗಿವ್ಸ್ ಅಸ್ ಪ್ಯೂರಿಫಿಕೇಷನ್ ಆಫ್ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಕಾನ್ಸಂಟ್ರೇಷನ್ ಆಫ್ ಮೈಂಡ್ ವಿತ್ ದ ಪ್ಯೂರಿಫೈಡ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಕಾನ್ಸಂಟ್ರೇಟೆಡ್ ಮೈಂಡ್ ಆಸ್ ವಿ ಕಂಟಿನ್ಯೂ ಅವರ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿ ಆಫ್ ದಿ ಉಪನಿಷತ್ಸ್ ಭಗವದ್ಗೀತ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಯು ನೋ ವೇದಾಂತಿಕ್ ಟೆಕ್ಸ್ಟ್ಸ್ ದೇರ್ ಕಮ್ಸ್ ಅ ಪಾಯಿಂಟ್ ವೆನ್ ದರ್ ಇಸ್ ಅ ಬ್ರೇಕ್ ಥ್ರೂ ವೆನ್ ವಿ ಕ್ಲಿಯರ್ಲಿ ಸೀ ದಟ್ ಇಟ್ ಈಸ್ ಟ್ರೂ ದಟ್ ಐ ಆಮ್ ರಿಯಲಿ ನಾಟ್ ದ ಬಾಡಿ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ನಾಟ್ ಸಮಥಿಂಗ್ ಥಿಯೋರಿಟಿಕಲ್ ದಟ್ ಐಮ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿಂಗ್ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಯು ನೋ ಸಮಟೈಮ್ಸ್ ದ ಬ್ರೇಕ್ ಥ್ರೂ ನಾಟ್ ಸಮಟೈಮ್ಸ್ ಆಲ್ವೇಸ್ ದ ಬ್ರೇಕ್ ಥ್ರೂ ಇಸ್ ಸೋ ಪವರ್ಫುಲ್ ದಟ್ಸ್ ವೈ ದ ಬ್ರೇಕ್ ಥ್ರೂ ಇಸ್ ಆಲ್ವೇಸ್ ಕ್ಲಾಸಿಫೈಡ್ ಆಸ್ ಯು ನೋ ಎನ್ಲೈಟನ್ಮೆಂಟ್ mystical realizations always accompanied by it's like a stunning moment unforgettable in your life it's always effortlessly before and after but the technically speaking it's not a new experience it's like recognizing what has always been there technically speaking a new experience is when you meet somebody new when you see something new that's a new experience but when you suddenly realize something about somebody you already knew or a place you have already seen it's new knowledge about an existing experience do you see the difference so only thing is i'm a little hesitant about calling it new knowledge because immediately we confuse it with oh, getting some new information it's not just new information it's a it's a huge huge uh, matter i mean it's the most profound experience one can have in in life so you can call it an experience that's why enlightenment is called an experience this is all from the vedantic perspective from a devotional or yogic perspective it is an experience it is a new experience there is no doubt about it now once that breakthrough is made then what happens that's what we were talking about um in the last few classes all these verses are about that for example very powerful verses which we saw last time so the 18th and 19th verses which talk about seeing the same reality everywhere all the time seeing means only within quotes you're not actually seeing uh, some reality with your eyes you know it to be that same reality what you are seeing with your eyes continues so eyes will only see forms ears will only hear sound um, and so all the senses they keep on functioning the way they have been functioning but now you realize what you see hear smell taste or touch what you think remember desire all the activities of the senses all activities of the mind um, the reality underneath them and the reality that they reveal is nothing other than one uh, being awareness one unlimited being awareness so you see the same reality everywhere and the 18th verse said vidya vinaya sampanne brahmane an enlightened person who is fully learned in the sacred scriptures and 
all the results of enlightenment are there. Literally, it means knowledge and humility. Knowledge and vidya vinaya. But it stands for enlightenment and all the results of that enlightenment. That means this person is a saint. Is, um, so that person and a cow and a dog and the most inferior kind of person, it's put in the, cent- in the uh, language of the ancient caste system. Um, so there it was very hierarchical. The Brahmin who was very learned and uh, had all virtues was considered the highest, the, the, you know, at the top of the hierarchy of society. And the low caste Chandala who was, um, you know, not learned and um, given to all kinds of crude behavior and uh, eating prohibited food, is a dog eater, was considered the lowest in society. So in human society, from the highest to the lowest, um, in animals, in all living beings, like an elephant or a cow or whatever, in all beings, you saw the same, exactly the same divinity radiating through. So sometimes, you know, a lot of discussions going go on now uh, that how the Bhagavad Gita is casteist and I'm sure it is a product of a, uh, of a very caste conscious society, there's no doubt about it. But the teaching here is just the opposite. I don't know why people don't um, emphasize that. It's the most radical kind of equality. The most radical, kind, not even equality, sameness. You're considering the person who's the highest in your uh, hierarchy and the person who is the lowest in your hierarchy, and even people and things which are outside your hierarchy, like animals, all of them to be uh, the same and not the same in some very the lowest, you know, like they're all material, they're all like physical living beings, not in that sense. You're considering them all to be divine. So that kind of radical oneness, sameness, equality, it's just not brought out. Uh, I mean, I have been in, uh, for example, discussions at the Harvard Divinity School on Bhagavad Gita, there's always somebody who says that it is a misogynistic book, it is a casteist book, and often they are, <laughs> that's the new political line actually. So it is something, they know those lines by heart and they don't know the Gita. At the most they may know one or two quotes um, which they will use to justify their position and they have never bothered to read any, any of the rest at all. Anyway, um, so, the enlightened person sees the same divinity everywhere. There are a lot of discussions about this in the, um, in the commentaries. How is this enlightenment? After all, what is wisdom? Wisdom is to treat equal, equal beings equally and unequal beings unequally. How can you see the same in unequal beings and be called enlightened? Who is enlightened? Who gives honor to the learned Brahmin and will treat an animal like an animal, will treat an inferior person like an inferior person. That's common sense. And here you are teaching something just just the opposite. And you're saying the person who who treats all of these obviously different people, obviously different beings, such vast differences, and you're saying they see the same thing in all of them. How is this? This is craziness. But no, you're saying this is enlightenment. I, I give the example of the Holy Mother who said, just as Sharat is my son, Amjad too is my son. Sharad being Swami Saradanandaji, Amjad being a, 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 a decoit, a highwayman, a Muslim highwayman. And she says they're exactly the same, just as. Then, and that person is called Pandita, wise. 
Uh, why is Pandita? The technical meaning of Pandita is one who has who has realized the nature of the self. Atma, Atma Vishaya Pragya, Panda. Panda means Atma Vishaya Pragya. The wisdom or the enlightenment about the self. The one who has it is called a Pandit. Then the next verse said, Here itself, one goes beyond the cycle of birth and death. So the second result of this enlightenment, first result is you see sameness everywhere. One divinity everywhere. Um, and sameness to the highest order. That means they are all equal and equal as God. And then the next benefit is you go beyond life and death, beyond the cycle of life and you, you conquer death. One who sees the same divinity everywhere. How do you do that? Uh, because you realize you are Brahman as consciousness and that consciousness never dies. After all, what is death? Death is the death of the physical body. And uh, after the death of the physical body, even the mind does not die. I was talking about this yesterday in a class in, in, um, organized by San Diego, Vedanta Society. You see, the simple logic, death. So from a Vedantic perspective, what's happening? Any person we meet, um, right now when we talk to a person, we see there are actually two series going on together. Uh, one is the physical body, which is changing from childhood to youth to middle age to old age and then death. And there is the subtle body, thoughts, feelings, emotions, the person in that body. And remember, we have no direct access to the person. From outside, we have access only to the physical body. A doctor, a scientist, or any ordinary person, we can see and interact only with the physical body. And how do we know that there is a person? That person speaks to us and tells us his or her own thoughts and feelings and desires and emotions and wants. And so we know that there is a person. There's a person in this body I know by direct experience. I know. I know my own thoughts and feelings. But in you there is a person because you tell me so. Now, when this two series, a physical series and a subtle body series is there, only one I can interact with. The one I can interact with dies. That's the physical death. How can I be sure that the one behind it, the person, is dead? There is no way of finding out. At no point have you been able to access that second person directly. So then, then how do you know? The only way we know that the person is also dead, does not exist anymore, is if you accept a little bit of dodgy logic that somehow that person is being produced by the brain and nervous system of this living body. When the body dies, the brain and nervous system are dead and therefore that person doesn't exist anymore. Now that's called a materialistic reduction, materialistic reductionism, only if you buy into it. A lot of people do, but if you actually examine the logic behind it and you compare it with what I said, compare it with your own experience, it doesn't fit. The day they solve the so-called hard problem of consciousness and show that the brain actually generates, causally generates consciousness, then I'll, I'll agree that there might be something to it. Until that point, no. Not only that, there is no, uh, right now, the state of the art is that there is no way in principle also of solving the hard problem of consciousness. There's no promising theory in, in the field at all. It, it cannot be. That, that is basically the hard problem of consciousness, which David Chalmers has pointed out, that in principle, it's insoluble. You cannot reduce consciousness to matter. Therefore, the mind cannot be reduced to the physical body. When the physical body dies, the mind goes on. And mind means, here I'm including 
the subtle the whole subtle body mind intellect memory ego manobuddhi chitta ahankara the pranic system the pra- pranamaya kosha manomaya kosha vijnanamaya kosha all of it together that's co- that's constitutes the subtle body our subtle body that goes on and i the real consciousness awareness itself which the vedanta talks about even you are not even that person you are the impersonal consciousness um, wearing the cloth being limited into persons so that goes on and that is life and death and that goes on we it, it takes up new bodies and we are we the consciousness being identified with the subtle body we also feel that i am in this life and this is my body this is my life and we continue in that cycle you are freed of the cycle when you suddenly realize i am not the physical body i am not even the subtle body i am not the physical body which is born and dies a physical death i am not even the subtle body which was not born with physical birth which did not die with physical death but which is subject to change which is subject to waking dreaming deep sleep which is subject to depression and uh, elation and misery and all of that i'm not even that i'm the awareness uh, which is aware of all of this and all of this i'm like the vast blue sky in which all these like are like cloud formations they are form and they play around there are storms and then they all disappear and the blue sky remains a vast blue sky all the time i am that uh, that sky of awareness once you realize that you're free ihaiva in this very life what a strong statement while remaining in this body you're free this is called jivan mukti many philosophers do not accept it many schools um, in india also they said that this kind of freedom is available only after death as long as you're in a body you can be a very spiritual person that's all but you cannot be perfected you cannot be free freedom comes with physical death Uh, for not for everybody only for the very saintly people this is not the view of vedanta because you as pure consciousness awareness you're always free you're all, you already are free so the tibetan buddhists let me at this point talk about the um, um, four kinds of freedom which tibetan buddhists talk about it's part of their dzogchen philosophy um as far as i have been able to understand it's pretty close it's a very beautiful uh, you can consider an extension of what we are talking about here how are we free all the time so they talk about a primordial freeness primordial freedom the primordial freedom is anadi in the sense of anadi beginningless freedom the consciousness that you are is free with the, from you know beginninglessly anadi that no point was it bound just like that vast blue sky uh, it is uh, free it is not attached to any of the clouds which come it is not affected by any of the storms which take place in that vast blue sky it's not even polluted by uh, the you know the pollution the greenhouse gases that we release into the sky the atmosphere gets polluted sky never gets polluted space cannot be polluted that way so it is ever free um, you are not a sky you are awareness awareness is ever free um, before the birth of the body during the body during when it seems that we are bound when we are in ignorance even then you are actually free and afterwards also you are free this is called primordial freedom the second freedom they talk about freedom or liberation they call it liberation second freedom they call about uh, talk about is the self liberation at the moment to moment so as we are living right now right now in this body and mind there are different things which are arising and disappearing in our consciousness follow this carefully this is a very subtle insight there are sort of many things which are arising and disappearing in our consciousness um, perceptions 
sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, good, not so good, pleasant, um, you know, obsessive, all kinds of thought formations are arising and disappearing. Now, those tend to bind us. You may say it's all right that you feel that you're free, but you feel bound when these things happen, when the, when the world oppresses you, when your mind gets disturbed in spite of everything, it gets disturbed, then you feel you're bound. Then what do you do? So there's a second kind of freedom, which you can apply from moment to moment. Whatever arises in awareness, use that to become aware of yourself as awareness. Whatever arises in awareness, um, here, this book is arising in my awareness. So immediately, how do you apply something like Big Drishya Vivek? Multiple ways are there. So this book is there. And it appears from this book, instead of being obsessed with the book, I become aware that the eyes are seeing the book. And then blink my eyes. I note that my mind is noting the blinking of the eyes. Then I note that the mind is thinking about the eyes. The thoughts in the mind are appearing in awareness. I am that awareness. Is that awareness bound? No. So use any kind of arising in awareness, like this book has arisen, any kind of arising in awareness to dissolve that uh, arising. It could be a feeling, it could be a perception, you dissolve it. That's called freedom. That's called moment to moment, self-freedom, they call it. Um, they, they use the idea of emptiness of that arising to see that it's nothing but pure consciousness. It's awareness only. The third one they use is called direct liberation or direct freedom. Direct freedom means Forget about eternally being free. Forget about what is arising in consciousness. Right now, just notice the isness awareness, the presence. You are aware. You are and you shine. That isness is shining. That's what you are. And apart from that, don't think about I'm a man, a woman, I'm a spiritual seeker, I'm a Hindu, Vedantist, Buddhist. All that is later. Just that sat chit, isness awareness. That's directly present all the time. Like in a clay pot, Shankaracharya says, the clay is blazing forth all the time. It's choicelessly, when you see a clay pot, you're choicelessly seeing the clay. Here, your choicelessly existence awareness is shining forth. Now this is always available to us. So this is called direct liberation. And the last one they call a complete liberation, which uh, I don't understand so much which I think is something, maybe it's something like Jivan Mukti, which is, um, which becomes natural to you, like Ramana Maharshi's, um, you know, what he called the natural Samadhi, the, the Sahaja Samadhi, probably, I'm not sure. You have to ask an expert in Tibetan Buddhism. Anyway, the verse said, such a person sees the same divinity everywhere. What does this person experience? Nirdosham hi samam brahma. Samam Brahma, the vastness is the same everywhere. And Nirdosha, it is faultless. It is stainless. It is free of karma. Papa Punya, good and bad, merit and demerit, which tie us in samsara. It's free of that all the time. It's free of that. You are free of that. You are faultless. You are stainless. You the, the absolute reality, the pure consciousness. Not you, the person. And the person will ha will be, is caught in the uh, meshes of uh, karma. And the person and you are not, you the absolute are not two different things. You the absolute alone appear as the person. The moment you realize you're the absolute, it basically dissolves the reality of the person. You are the reality, the absolute. Except that as long as the person's prarabdha karma is there, the person's body mind will continue for a little more time. 
you call the enlightened while living. Then what happens? 20th verse. Na prarhishyet priyam prapya, no dvijet prapya cha priyam, sthira buddhir asam mudho, brahma vid brahmani sthitaha. The knower of Brahman, who is established in Brahman, poised in mind and undiluted, is not elated on getting what is pleasant, nor feels worried on getting what is unpleasant. So how is this enlightened person different from us? What happens to us is Priya Apriya. Uh, and um, oh, um, Harsha and Udvega. So Priya means what is pleasant, what is favorable, what is agreeable. Pleasant, favorable, agreeable to what? To my body, to my senses, to my mind, to the person that I consider myself to be. So it could just be nice weather, that's nice to the body. It could just be nice food, it's nice to the taste, or it's nice uh, thing to see. Or it could be a person who behaves nicely with me. So it's something pleasing to the personality, to the person that I am. These are all called Priya. And there is exactly the opposite. Or it could be just just a person who belongs to my way of thinking. It's very agreeable, especially if you're a thinker. If a person is a Vedantist, a non-dualist, oh, you, you're, you like, uh, you get along well like a house on fire. But suppose a person is a materialist or a completely, or even a theist who is very narrow and dogmatic that only this path is right and everything else is wrong and you're all going to burn in hell. Now that is apriya, that is very unfavorable. Unfavorable, unpleasant to whom? To the person who has got a certain set of ideas. It could be a Vedantist also. So you have priya and apriya, favorable, unfavorable, pleasant, unpleasant. It could be pleasant and unpleasant to the body, to the senses, to the mind, to the personality. In, in the, included in the personality is your ideology. Are you a Republican or a Democrat? Are you a non-dualist or a dualist or whatever? Uh, so all those things, they play on the personality. And there's nothing wrong with this. Even the enlightened person will see that this is according to my tastes, the tastes of this body or the ideas of this person. This is not according to the uh, tastes or the ideas. This is not favorable. Both, both will come. Priya and Apriya will come. The knowledge of Priya and Apriya, the knowledge of favorable, unfavorable, pleasant and unpleasant, will come to the enlightened person, will come to the unenlightened person. One second. Ah. Will come to the enlightened person, will come to the unenlightened person. But what is the difference? In the unenlightened person, it will evoke a strong reaction. What is favorable will evoke harsha. Uh, pleasure, happiness, um, you know, this is great. And what is unpleasant, what is seen as unpleasant and unfavorable will uh, evoke a reaction of udvega, anxiety, disturbance, restlessness, unhappiness. And this is wrong. Why? First of all, it creates unhappiness. It ties you to the world. It's a bondage. But deeper, it's false. You are reacting to something which is not ultimately true. A pleasant sight. Why should it evoke 
um, um, you know, joy uh, in 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 Brahman, in the absolute reality, a pain. Why should it evoke um, you know despair or unhappiness in that absolute reality? These are appearances. Does the does the movie screen get upset uh, with a with a, even a, even you though who are watching the movie? Do you really get upset with the tragedy? Do you really get very happy with the comedy? You may laugh in the comedy. You may even weep with the tragedy. But both are aesthetic experiences to you. You are not deeply upset. You are not seriously. So the enlightened person may go along with the flow of life, may enjoy what is pleasant, may note the disturbance and the pain caused by what is unpleasant. But if you ask, are you really, really suffering? Or do you really, really want this? Is there a strong desire for this? Is there a strong repulsion from that? Raga and Dvesha? No. No. <laughs> this is the difference. He says... Na prarishyet priyam prapya. When something pleasant comes along. Comes along means by your prarabdha karma. A pleasant thing, a pleasant person, pleasant incident, situation comes along. You don't get elated. It's fine. There is a saying, Buddhist meditation. Let it come, let it be, let it go. Let it come. It will come. Let it be. And you go also. Let it go. You are not particularly... Um, tied up with it or, or invested in it. But the unenlightened person likes it so much, wants to hold on to it, wants to repeat that experience, wants to have more of it, wants to have varieties and flavors of that experience. And the opposite, no dvijet prapya cha apriyam, when the unpleasant comes along, pain comes, a disease comes, um, for a celebrity, I saw in Hollywood, the greatest tragedy is not being famous, not being in the news. That comes. Being famous and then not being famous anymore. Being recognized and then not being recognized anymore. It's a great tragedy. No. It's not a tragedy. No, Dvijet. You meet people who are completely opposed to your point of view. Do you get restless, annoyed? No, not at all. It is just a dharma, a property of that particular subtle body. Just as this is, this is the property of your subtle body, this set of ideas in your subtle body at this point, that set of ideas in that subtle body at that point. That's all. Underlying it, you are the same consciousness, they're also the same consciousness. You and that one are the same. Whom to praise, whom to blame, when praiser, praised, blamer and blamed are but one. Literally. With whom will you be upset and whom will you love when you wake up from a dream and you think about all those you met in the dream? Nobody. They're really not literally different from you. Um, none, of, none of them was really your enemy. None of them was really your friend. They were you. Literally you. So, sthira buddhi. Three words are used. Very nice. Sthira buddhi. Of settled conviction. Asam mudha. Undiluted. Brahmavid, knower of Brahman. Brahmani sthitaha, centered in Brahman. So the Brahmani sthita, how, do you, how are you centered in Brahman? Three steps. Brahmavid, sthirabuddhi, asammodha. One interpretation is this. Brahmavid means knower of Brahman. That is what you get by Shravana. By systematically studying Vedanta, you know that you are Brahman. Just like we all do now. 
and then you have many doubts you reason it out it's a long process when that is more or less reasonably accomplished you become sthira buddhi conviction comes clarity comes and then you engage in nididhyasana vedantic meditation till it becomes a living uh, reality for you and the ups and downs of life cannot sweep you away you know what you are but you keep getting swept away that also will not happen it becomes natural to you aham brahmasmi that is called asammoha that is the result of nididhyasana that's one interpretation but another interpretation is all of this is after enlightenment um, that one was shravana manana nididhyasana you know it but it's not yet it's not a living reality for you you have many doubts after that you resolve all the doubts now you know it and you know have no more doubts also and but it's still not living for you and then you meditate upon it assimilate it till it becomes a living reality and then you are enlightened you are a jivan mukta but at that point these three are are also applicable if after making the breakthrough after making the breakthrough from there to jivan mukti there might be a gap um so once one is one knows that i am this uh, endless vastness this awareness what the buddhists call the clear light of the void i am this you have no doubt about it um no intellectual doubts and at no point is there any shaking in that clarity or conviction it it's effortless for you still it's um it's still it's not easy to navigate life still the, the world affects you still you get affected a little bit you still have the tendency of behaving according to your earlier conditioning the body mind continues with its own tendencies why would that happen if it has not been sufficiently purified earlier there's a whole difference between two groups you know it, um, uh, our uh, vidyaranya calls it the kritopasti and akritopasti kritopasti is a person like who has com- who has completed all the stages of sadhana spiritual practice purification of mind concentration of purification of mind to the point of desirelessness concentration of mind to the point of samadhi then you make the breakthrough then the transition to jivan mukti being fully enlightened while living is effortless but vidyaranya points out in this age he says in this age 700 years ago so it's not just the 21st century there is a problem in the 14th century also in this age there are people who have who may make a breakthrough but uh, who have not completed the entire process of spiritual purification so they need to uh, go through this purification in order to why because once they have made the breakthrough they are free he says it is very clear once you have made the breakthrough you realize you are brahman you are free because that that cycle of birth and death is over for you but right now in this body and mind suppose you want to enjoy the bliss of of freedom of of enlightened living then you must become centered in brahman that centering in brahman this two for that person the spiritual practices will be somewhat different um, before that the spiritual practices are for becoming enlightened but this person is is in a technical sense already enlightened Uh, so this person just has to remain centered brahmani sthita remain centered in brahman in two ways sthira buddhi stays with the conviction and clarity he or she has gained stay with it don't give in to the mechanical patterned way of thinking you know the old patterns of i am body i am mind don't give in to that that requires effort and asammoha undiluted when the waves of 
passion, anger, pettiness, all the problems which were there in the mind earlier, because their mind has been conditioned, when they arise, you must push back against it. So the both ways. Stay with the new knowledge you have gained. After all, if you are so clear that you are Brahman, why not stay with it? Why not behave accordingly? And if you are so clear you are Brahman, why do you behave like a body-mind? So that behaving like a body-mind, losing, becoming angry or jealous or petty or, or depressed or unhappy or overcome by sorrow or uh, the problems of the world, that is called moda, deluded. Asam moda, not deluded. That's also a practice. Let me see. By the way, one thing before I forget, I was meaning to tell you, I was reading in the conversations with Swami Premeshanandaji. So Swami Suhitanji, who was an, uh, a sevak and attendant of Swami Premeshanandaji, he took down extensive notes of his discussions of what Swami Premeshanandaji used to say. And those are now being published in Vedanta Kesari as reminiscences of Shargachi. So uh, in one place, Swami Premeshanandaji says something interesting. He says, um, cultivation of steady mind. Somebody said that cultivation, you mean serene mind, peaceful mind. And Swami Premeshanji said, no, 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 I mean steady mind. This is very important. Until you are fully enlightened, until you are Jivan Mukta, in the path of knowledge, in the path of devotion, if you are a meditator, whatever you are, the mind will get disturbed. It is no easy thing for the mind to remain serene, even if you are a devotee. If there is sorrow, if there is physical pain, if that somebody disease is there, somebody close to you becomes ill, disease, death, or some anxiety is there, financial anxiety, job anxiety, so many problems can come. Or even the not only physical illness, mental illness, that's also, it's a body. There's nothing to be really ashamed or worried about it. It's a body. Subtle body is a body. If those things come, it's very difficult for the mind to remain calm. It's very difficult for the mind to remain peaceful. So to, then you'll feel that, oh, I failed to maintain peaceful mind. Swami Premeshanji says, no, no, don't make that mistake. To trying to cultivate a peaceful, a serene mind, it, it's a subtle mistake. Try to cultivate steady mind. Steady mind, which is not shaken by the ups and downs of life. I am a spiritual practitioner. I shall do my spiritual practices. These are my ethical standards. I shall not break them. This, this is the way I deal with people. I see the divinity in everybody. I try to do that. This is what I'll do. I'll struggle to do. I may fail also. This is steady mind. Does not matter what happens in the world, what happens in the family, what happens in the body, what happens in my mind. Does not matter. Let the mind become unhappy. Let the mind get scared. Let the mind be depressed. Let other people behave. You have no control. It's so difficult to control our own mind. You have no control over how other people behave. So, uh, Premeshanji says, cultivate steady mind. Steady mind requires strength. In times of trial and tribulation, strength. To hold on to God in devotion if you are a devotee. To hold on to the clarity. Did I not claim that I have clearly understood I am awareness? Then why am I worried about the little problem, the shakiness in one mind, in one body? Why? I am the immortal Atman. There is nothing greater than me. Why am I worried? So that steadiness. This is another problem of trying to cultivate serene mind or peaceful mind is that it inculcates selfishness. 
it inculcates weakness. Uh, serene mind, peaceful mind, that's the result of enlightenment, which we are talking about here. But before that, if I try to maintain serenity, then what will happen is I'll, I'll end up avoiding trouble. But you cannot avoid trouble in life. Your past karma will bring you trouble. Even if you're careful to avoid troublesome situations, don't go out into troublesome situations. Don't try to mix with troublesome people. So as Sri Ramakrishna says, the tiger Narayana is Narayana, is Lord. But you have to bow down to the tiger Lord from a distance. Don't go and embrace the tiger Lord. So that applies at every level of life. But still, the fact remains one cannot avoid it. Our prarabdha karma will bring trouble to us. Trial and tribulation and trouble will, uh, will come to us. That is the nature of karma. Their peaceful mind, serene mind will not help unless you are already enlightened. They can maintain a peaceful mind. But we cannot. So we have to maintain. What can we do? We have to maintain steady mind. We have to say it doesn't matter. I shall persist. I shall be strong. I shall be calm. I shall be unmoved. I shall persist with my spiritual practices. So that I found a very, very good advice. That is something practical for all of us. And um, too much pursuit of a peaceful mind. You are beyond suffering. That's very attractive. And then the, the subtle message that goes into our subconscious is, I must practice that now. I must try to be beyond suffering right now. You can't be. You can't be. And the life has a way of rudely awakening us. If you say that I am peaceful, everything is fine now, I've gone to a very high spiritual level, life will teach us. You give such a kick. <laughs> Kicks and blows from life will come. Then, we'll, then the danger is we'll feel that, oh, spiritual practices are not working. No, they are working. But you shouldn't expect a peaceful or serene mind before enlightenment. Um, Sri Ramakrishna, uh, Swami Turiyananji says, in his old age, physical ailments, and he would get a cranky sometimes. Then he would say that, oh, this is only on the surface. He would say in, in Bengali, Thakur bhetorta barof kore it's like a mass of ice within. I'm so calm and like it's absolutely peaceful within. So that's always available to an enlightened person. And at least we can try to some extent. So the takeaway is steady mind. Don't be so worried about whether mind is peaceful or not. Steady mind. Let's look at the questions. Where is the chat? Okay. Um, Bill says the same sightedness about all in verse 18 seems to be the same as the spirit of the Ramakrishna mission. Yes. Shiva Jnana Jiva Seva. To see, to serve all beings, knowing them to be Shiva. Correct. Knowing them to be Shiva. The Lord resides in the hearts of all beings. Rekha Kalikar says, how should one react to these ill-informed and unfounded criticism against the Gita since the bias is so strong? I think you better not react because it seems to be a fashion today. See, the, it has a source in something good and noble. There, there's no doubt there has been caste discrimination and, um, you know, so that has led to a lot of human suffering. And there's no doubt that you know, what you call misogyny, this anti-woman attitude, but that's been, patriarchal attitudes have been there in every religion. These were patriarchal societies. 
so it's common to every religion it's not that it's particularly so in uh, india or in, in gita or something so all these these criticisms they come from a good place but now it's like political ideology it is uh, fashionable <laughs> i remember in one class at harvard university studying the bhagavad gita so one gentleman uh, came and i found the least informed and the least respectful were the indians the the, the hindus there were only two hindus in the, there were three apart from the monks one was very uh, very interested and she was a exchange student from another university and she had really read the gita and she was very interested in, in doing that in coming to the class there were two others one of whom could hardly read a single word of sanskrit whereas i saw uh white and asian uh, people who were um you know experts on judaism experts on christianity and they were interested in the gita reading sanskrit so well and it's so that was one thing and there's this another young person who had come from another uh, harvard school with the only point was that uh, isn't this uh, a discriminatory book that's the only point he could raise <laughs> and he knew nothing about the bhagavad gita yeah so it's a kind of fashion better to ignore these fashions girish meditation can affect the brain which means the mind affects matter so there must be a bridge between mind and matter can this bridge not be transversed in reverse matter creating mind the solving the hard problem um is there a bridge between mind and matter obviously don't make too much of the independence of mind over matter subtle body is not the physical body uh, i stress that so much that people you know get the impression that it they're absolutely two independent things not at all when they when they when they function they are very closely in, uh, linked together it's not that the subtle body does not depend on the physical body without the physical body there is almost nothing that the subtle body can do so it requires a physical body for all kinds of activities so if there is a bridge so there is a bridge but the bridge does not bridge connects the two banks of the river but the bridge does not create either bank so it's not that mind creates matter or might matter creates mind neither in, from from an advaitic perspective neither is created there's no creation at all consciousness alone appears as matter and mind and a good way of understanding this is look just look at our dreams dreams are not um, consciousness appearing as the world it's rather the dreamer's mind the common sense view of the dream what's a dream is the dreamer's mind appearing as many subjects and objects as many people many living beings and many non living beings space time all is created by a mind but it's not really created the mind alone appears in that way um so can this bridge not be trans- transversed in reverse what is transversing the bridge in reverse that matter affects the mind of course it affects the mind but matter creating the mind look at the the imbalance in the example you give an example of how mind affects matter uh, so meditation for example uh, can affect the brain it does um but it affects the brain did we prove that mind created the brain no we didn't prove that similarly you cannot prove that uh, matter creates the mind uh, brain creates the mind far less brain creating consciousness but there is a very close interaction that also sometimes we spiritual people we you know in eastern philosophy we tend to speak as if there are two different things if there are two different things why is there a body at all let the mind do everything no it can't it's like saying uh, uh, software and hardware are independent yes they are 
but the software can't do a single thing without a device you need a computer or some kind of device somewhere rick says what do you say to sam harris and others who say that there is no person nothing which could be called a self if they were to accept the existence of a subtle body they would probably say that there is no self in that either it's just a collection of uh, components it's true um it's a buddhistic perspective and uh, we are actually saying the same thing there is no self in any of these for example um, the physical body see this is difference um, normally without examination when you ask are you a person are you a self yes we feel that what is this self we will start with the physical body we think we are this so vedanta shows us science shows us all of it neuroscience buddhism shows us this body cannot be the self then you transfer that thing to the mind so you know the buddhist perspective with the five, would be the five aggregates out of those five aggregates one is physical the other four are actually mind uh, including the vigyana skanda they translated as consciousness pillar consciousness aggregate but it's not consciousness aggregate it's the mind it's the reflected consciousness in the mind so none of these are the self there is no self in any of them that's what the buddhist dialectic aims to prove but the buddhist dialectic does not prove does not even address the issue of um, the background awareness that which is appearing as body mind so it escapes the net of the dialectic the buddhist dialectic and the buddhist dialectic would not want to attack that also because that's what at least according to tibetan madhyamaka buddhism that's what it is or many schools of i i uh, understand i gather of chinese mahayana also that's what where they are pointed actually that there is Uh, an infinitude of awareness of a being which is not a thing uh, it's not a specific thing called a self but that's the ultimate nature of the self only they would not call it a self because their whole doctrine is no self rick archer says they also say that it's so for example when you said the subtle body they would probably say there's no self in that it's just a collection of components that's what advaita vedanta also says the subtle body is a collection of components it's not ultimately the atman you just think it's the atman and then um, vedanta shows you why it cannot be the self it's not the self also uh, rick says they also say there's no free will since there's no one to have it yet vedanta as it understand it says that there is free will limited by prarabdha karma so who has that free will it's the one who thinks that uh, i am free who is that is it it doesn't exist if it doesn't exist then there's no question of free will but you do feel that there is somebody who exists like that and that that i am and i seem to have a limited degree of free will and all our vyavahara transactions in this world they all depend upon this concept of free will you can't have a justice system without free will whom will you blame whom will you punish whom will you imprison unless you attribute free will to their freely willed illegal action then only it can be prosecuted so all of voting democracy it's all based on free will choice our economic system based on free will choice so you have to admit and buddhists vedantists all of them they admit free will but at what level at vyavaharika transactional level At transaction level, everything that is required for our day-to-day activities is admitted. Yes, there is a body. Yes, there are other bodies. Yes, there is a there is language, and language means something. Language refers to some reality there. Yes, there is some kind of free will. 
Upon analysis, no. None of it holds together. It's the Maya of Advaita Vedanta or the Shunyata emptiness of Madhyamaka Buddhism. Vishwanathan says, the teaching in this verse seems to be related to chapter 2 verses. Yes, 56 and 57. Chapter 2 verses 56 and 57, which uh, talk about the characteristic of the perfected one. The one who is free while living. Sthita Pragya of established enlightenment or established realization. Let me just do the next verse and then we'll see the questions. 21. Bahya sparsheshva saktatma vindatyatmaniyat sukham sabrahma yoga yuktatma sukham akshayam ashnute He whose mind is unattached to the external objects of the senses attains to that bliss that is in the self. He with his mind identified with Brahman through absorption in it enjoys undecaying bliss. So this is the question. The enlightened person, is the enlightened person happy or not? Very, very happy. I'm happy to tell you that the enlightened person is uh, is extremely happy. Even in the sense we, we understand happiness, there is no uh, philosophical subtlety, two ways about it. The enlightened person is very happy. In fact, one of the reasons why I became a monk was, I told a monk when I was a kid uh, in, the, in the monastery near our house, you know, you guys, um, you don't have a house and a car and a family and kids and money like my mom and dad have. But you're always happy. And they're almost never happy. <laughs> uh, so, and, and the monk said something wise. He said that it's not just because of being a monk. Maybe you haven't met householder devotees of that caliber who are also very uh, pure and happy in mind. But it's a question of being spiritual. That's what he told me. Uh, so yes, enlightened people, spiritual people, why just enlightened? Spiritual people are happy. asaktatma, who is unattached to external contact. What does that mean? See, the whole of delusion or illusion starts because we do not know ourselves as this infinite isness awareness. We don't know that. We don't feel that. And therefore, we feel we are small. We are this body, this mind, this little creature. Being Feeling small and limited. Small and limited means I'm dependent on the world uh, to satisfy my hunger and thirst because I am this body for to live and to satisfy my senses, to satisfy my mind. I'm um, totally dependent on this world. So I keep looking for things in the world outside. Bhaihasparsha, external touch. This external touch can be external, physically external, uh, like a cookie which I taste. That's an external touch. Also, it could be internal. Uh, that is also an external touch because internal in the sense, internal in the mind, pleasant thoughts and daydreams are nice. I'm attached to that. Or it could be cultivation uh, of some kind of high art, mathematics, I have seen artists, um, painters, mathematicians, they are deeply absorbed in, in the inner, rich inner life that gives much higher pleasure than external things. Uh, I heard about the great composer who went deaf and yet he, 
composed, I think, was it um, Bach or Beethoven? I think it was Beethoven, yes. Imagine a composer. So you would think that the person would be entirely dependent on senses, on the, on the uh, ear, on the fineness of hearing. Not at all. It's a more internal thing than actually hearing something physically. Um, so their joy is much greater. The joy of a, of a writer, the joy of a, of a scientist pondering upon a scientific problem. And I have personally seen uh, pure mathematicians. So pure mathematicians are almost entirely creatures of thought and intellect. There's a great joy in that very intense kind of thinking deeply, hour after hour, day after day. I asked a monk who is a pure mathematician, he gave a wonderful talk on Vedanta. I said, how could you give a like 45 minute talk on one argument from the beginning to end? It was like a mathematical proof. Step by step by step, he developed the argument. So he said, that's how we are trained. So if you are a pure mathematician, he's a topologist. So you have to follow the, the follow one argument for hours and days and weeks and months if necessary. One track of thought, you can't lose, um, you, know, you can't think in a scattered way. So that gives great joy. That's also external contact, that's touch. You get, become dependent on that. I, I've also seen mathematicians, um, scientists who become very unhappy once the mind stops working. A great philosopher I know, very unhappy. He was a master of Eastern and Western philosophy, both. One of the most learned people I've met. Very unhappy. Why? Stroke. Brain is not functioning. And um, memory failure. So unhappy. Now, that's because I'm dependent on the intellect. I'm dependent on the memory. That's still Bahyasparsha. But the enlightened person is Vindati Atmani Yatsukham. Brahma Yoga Yuktatma. Brahma Yoga Yuktatma literally means one who is centered in Brahman. So this person who realizes I am Brahman and this knowledge is not dependent on the intellect. It's not even dependent on memory. It's not even dependent. People ask, so I become enlightened and I realize all this and we still mind is working, right? Mind is necessary for enlightenment. Suppose my mind goes breaks down, then it's quite possible. Can I forget the enlightenment? I can forget everything that I've learned. It's quite possible. So the enlightenment also may go away. No, no, because the enlightenment does not depend on the mind. All of this we are doing with the help of the mind. What will it do from an Advaitic perspective? All our efforts will remove the ignorance in the mind. Knowledge will be generated in the mind by all our efforts. That enlightenment breakthrough will be generated by all our efforts definitely in the mind and it will remove the ignorance in the mind and it will reveal the, our always the pre-existing uh, existence consciousness place that awareness is always there once that is revealed there's no way you can be deluded again no way there's no effort that you have to uh, put forth to maintain that also it, it it's self-maintaining yeah. um, in fact the tibetan buddhists say that we put forth a lot of effort into maintaining this illusion. That we are pouring energy all the time into maintaining this house of Maya. They don't, they don't call it house of Maya. They call it this. They call it uh, energetic 
projections, energetic arisings. So energetic arisings in awareness is, what are these? All our thoughts, feelings, ideas, our constructs about the world, our depressions, our obsessions, our likes, our dislikes, our hatreds, our projects. They're all energetic awareness uh, arisings. They're nothing but pure consciousness. So you keep dissolving them. Keep dissolving them. And you'll each, in each case, you will see that, you will get that realization, Aham Brahmasmi. So this is called Brahma Yoga Yuktatma. And what will happen? Sukham Akshayam Ashnute. This one enjoys. Is having a party, the enlightened person, and an endless party. Sukham Akshayam. So Sri Ramakrishna used to say, Vishayananda, Bhajanananda, Brahmananda. Vishayananda is the joy of, the pleasure of Vishayas. You taste something good, you touch something pleasurable, you see something uh, which is pleasing, smell something, or think of something um, in your mind which is pleasurable. It could be something as gross as eating a cookie or as subtle as enjoying uh, art in the Metropolitan Museum. All these are good, but they are all dependent on external things. This person has uh, the very experience of one's own infinitude, infinitude as awareness existence, unlimited awareness existence. This is the source of joy. Vindati Atmani Yatsukham attains to or realizes or manifests the joy which is in the Atman. Imagine the peace of this person. Panchadashi says, why is the enlightened person so much at peace, so, so happy? He says, um, Gyatavya gyatataya, praptavya praptataya, kartavya kritakritataya. That means the person clearly realizes, I have known what is to be known in human life. I have realized God. I I have realized Brahman. I have achieved what has to be achieved in human life. Enlightenment, moksha, I have achieved it. And I have got Attained, praptavya. What is to be, what can be really attained in this world? I have attained this. Because of these reasons, one, one, imagine the peace of such a person. Somebody asked, but won't that person be bored? No, <laughs> won't be bored. Who is bored? Who has endless projects for fulfillment in the world and is trying to fulfill them and then finds an absence of any such project for the time being and feels bored. Something to do, some pleasure to enjoy, some job to be done. Then I'm feeling happy. Nothing there, then I feel bored. But if you feel your own infinitude all the time, shining forth inside and you open your eyes, the same infinitude outside, it's wonderful variety. You're completely at peace forever. What could bore you? Excitement and boredom are in the mind, not in you. So, Vindati Atmani Yatsukham. Vishayananda. Vishayananda is the joy of sense contact. The pleasure one gets in sense enjoyments. Sri Ramakrishna said. Much higher, much greater, much more stable, much purer is Bhajanananda. The joy of spiritual practice. The joy of devotional music and kirtan. The joy of, uh, of prayer. The joy of of crying for God. One of the greatest joys in the world is the joy of crying for God. Uh, Tulsidas says that you shed tears, the tears, one drop of tears shed for Rama is more pleasurable than all the pleasures of the world. So the joy of prayer, the joy of devotion for God, 
the joy of meditation, the joy of Vedantic inquiry, self-inquiry, as I begin to realize what I am not and what I am. All of these joys, these are all bhajana ananda, the joy of spiritual practice, the spiritual inquiry. It's very, it's wonderful. The spiritual seeker seeks to replace Vishayananda with Bhajanananda, the worldly pleasure with spiritual joy. But Brahmananda, the joy of Brahman and Ananda itself, that's again something different. That's not the same as Bhajanananda. Once you realize your true nature, you see that's an entirely different thing again. Brahmananda. And that, this Bhajanananda and Vishayananda, down to the grossest worldly joy, they are all manifestation. Shankaracharya says they are like foam, a little bit of foam from the or spray from the entire ocean of joy which you are. All the joys and pleasures of the world are like a little bit of spray from the ocean of joy which you are. Only thing is it's, it's there behind us. We are looking out there. We see little drops coming here and there and we chase that. That Bengali song that oh, they are sitting on the uh, shores of uh, immortal bliss. They're sitting on the shore of the ocean of nectar. Ocean of nectar. And they die of thirst. Why are they dying of thirst? They are not looking at the ocean. They are looking at the sand, the sandy beach. And they are trying to satisfy their thirst with the sand. It just keeps on increasing. And then the prayer at the end of the song. Um, very beautiful. He says, I pray to you, O most gracious, even if they do not want it, even if they don't understand, even if they do not want it, you give them what they need. You, my Lord, give them what they need, even if they don't want it. So, Asakta lot can be discussed about this. The whole of the whole of Taittiriya Upanishad, Brahmananda Vali, there's one whole section. Uh, it is called Ananda Mimamsa. A calculation, an analysis of bliss. What is worldly bliss? How does one get worldly bliss? What is otherworldly bliss? What is spiritual practice, the bliss of spiritual practice? And what is the ultimate bliss of Brahman? Vishayananda, Bhajanananda, Brahmananda. And there's a calculation. How much happiness can we get in this world? Wonderful section. Uh, I hope we can do it someday. I mentioned it occasionally. If you look, if you Google it in search of bliss, I've just sort of touched upon it in one or two talks. So uh, this is that is actually what this verse is referring to. But we have run out of time today. Sukham Akshayam Ashnute. This is a takeaway. Enlightened person enjoys endless bliss. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu Prabhupada Babu says Sadhu Sangha can provide tremendous joy and bliss. It does, yes. These are people who live on the shore of that ocean of bliss. So they can scatter a little bit upon us. There's no doubt, highly advanced spiritual people, if you go near them, the first thing is upliftment, purity of mind, a sense of being, of coolness, of, of for the first time being calmed from the, the, the heat of samsara, and joy, and sort of unforgettable joy. 
the people who you know in the reminiscences about sri ramakrishna he says it's 30 years since sri ramakrishna passed away 40 years since sri ramakrishna passed away but i live with the memory of those few days i live with the of few days with sri ramakrishna i live with the memory of that smile i bring to my memory and and the smile just the smile of of a person who is seeing god on the face of that person is the most valuable thing in this universe 